Hey there, welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Aulani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. I hope that everyone's having a great December so far. Since there are 14 religious holidays this month, I'd like to formally wish everyone a happy and safe holiday. Today's story is one of many others like it. A person of color being the victim of a hate crime is something that happens even today. But back in the 60s, the United States was over 40 years away from the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. Prejudice is so ingrained in United States society that it's become normal to hear about acts of terror and hate on our own soil. Thinking that hate groups like the KKK were only a product of the past is naive. David Duke, who preaches his conspiracy that the Holocaust never happened, was a former Grand Wizard of the KKK and still made it into office in the 90s. The prevalence of sundown towns is so notorious that it even inspired the film The Green Book. So while today's episode isn't necessarily physically gruesome, it's certainly upsetting because of the hate involved. A lot of the information for today's story comes from Sandra Chapman's book, The Girl in the Yellow Scarf. Now I want to take a moment to thank you all for your patience with the bi-weekly episodes. I have school starting back up in January on top of my full-time job, so I may be sticking to a bi-weekly release schedule. However, if you're interested in more content, I do have a bonus episode on Patreon that did violate YouTube's community guidelines. Um, patrons also get episodes early, and in the new year, they'll also be getting ad-free episodes. The more patrons we have, the more content I can create, since, like I said, I do work full-time and go to school. But if I'm able to take a day off from work each week, I can create more content for all of you lovely ghouls. So if you're interested in supporting the show, check out patreon.com slash stories from the mortuary or click on the Patreon link in the show notes where I will also be putting all of the sources I used for today's episode. Now first, I do need your help finding another missing indigenous woman. Ida Beard was a helper. The mother of four loved to volunteer at Sunday school. If anyone needed a hand preparing the fellowship dinner, she'd always offer her services. Ida, who loved ones described as always having a smile on her face, loved wearing her hair in French braids and had a habit of rolling her pant legs up. She never ventured too far from her El Reno, Oklahoma home where she lived with her mother, who's blind. It was a shock when the member of the Cheyenne Arapaho tribe disappeared on June 30th, 2015. On the evening she vanished, she told her mother that she was going to go visit friends down the street. Quote, All we know is she was seen leaving, reportedly walking home, and then she never made it there, El Reno Police Department Major Kirk Dickerson stated. What happened to Ida remains a mystery. Earlier this year, Senate Bill 172, also known as Ida's Law, was signed into law. The bill created an Office of Liaison for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons within the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, which will coordinate with state, tribal, and federal law enforcement agencies to address unsolved cases. Ida Joanne Beard was born December 26, 1985. At the time of her disappearance, she was 29 years old, 5 foot 6, and 120 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes. Her NamUs ID is 30338. If you have any information on Ida's disappearance or whereabouts, please call the El Reno Police Department at 405-262-6941. When we return from the break, we'll get into this week's story from the mortuary.
Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore Memento underscore Mori with two eyes. That is M-S underscore M-E-M-E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. There will be a day sometime in the near future when this guide will not have to be published. That is when we as a race will have equal opportunities and privileges in the United States. It will be a great day for us to suspend this publication, for then we can go wherever we please and without embarrassment. That was how the authors of the Negro Motorist Green Book ended the introduction to their 1948 edition. In the pages that followed, they provided a rundown of hotels, guest houses, service stations, drugstores, taverns, barbershops, and restaurants that were known to be safe ports of call for black travelers. The Green Book listed establishments in segregationist strongholds such as Alabama and Mississippi, but its reach also extended from Connecticut to California, any place where its readers might face prejudice or danger because of their skin color. With Jim Crow still looming over much of the country, a motto on the guide's cover also doubled as a warning. Carry your green book with you. You may need it. First published in 1936, the green book was the brainchild of a Harlem-based postal carrier named Victor Hugo Green. Like most black people in the mid-20th century, Green had grown weary of the discrimination blacks faced whenever they ventured outside of their neighborhoods. Rates of car ownership had exploded in the years before and after World War II, but the lure of the interstate was also fraught with risk for black people. Whites-only policies meant that black travelers often couldn't find safe places to eat and sleep, and so-called sundown towns, or municipalities that banned blacks after dark, were scattered across the country. As the foreword of the 1956 edition of the Green Book noted, quote, The white traveler has had no difficulty in getting accommodations, but with the Negro, it has been different. Inspired by earlier books published for Jewish audiences, Green developed a guide to help Black Americans indulge in travel without fear. The first edition of his Green Book only covered hotels and restaurants in the New York area, but he soon expanded its scope by gathering field reports from fellow postal carriers and offering cash payments to readers who sent in useful information. By the early 1940s, the Green Book boasted thousands of establishments from across the country, all of them either Black-owned or verified to be non-discriminatory. The 1949 guide encouraged hungry motorists passing through Denver to stop for a bite at the Dewdrop Inn. Those looking for a bar in the Atlanta area were told to try the Yam Man, Sportsman's Smoke Shop, or Butler's. In Richmond, Virginia, Restabit was the go-to ladies' beauty parlor. The Green Book's listings were organized by state and city, with the vast majority located in major metropolises such as Chicago and Detroit. More remote places had fewer options. Alaska only had a lone entry in the 1960 guide. But even in cities with no black-friendly hotels, the book often listed the addresses of homeowners who were willing to rent rooms. 
1954, it suggested that visitors to tiny Roswell, New Mexico should stay at the home of a Mrs. Mary Collins. The Green Book wasn't the only handbook for black travelers. Another publication called Travel Guide was marketed with the tagline, Vacation and Recreation Without Humiliation. Thanks to a sponsorship deal with Standard Oil, the Green Book was available for purchase at Esso gas stations across the country. Though largely unknown to whites, it eventually sold upwards of 15,000 copies per year and was widely used by black business travelers and vacationers alike. In his memoir, A Colored Man's Journey Through 20th Century Segregated America, Earl Hutchinson Sr. described purchasing a copy in preparation for a road trip he and his wife took from Chicago to California. Quote, The Green Book was the Bible of every Negro highway traveler in the 1950s and early 60s, he wrote. You literally didn't dare leave home without it. As its popularity grew, the Green Book expanded from a motorist companion to an international travel guide. Along with suggestions for the United States, later editions included information on airline and cruise ship journeys to places like Canada, Mexico, and the Caribbean. Quote, We know a number of our race who have a long-standing love affair with the tempestuous city of Paris, the 1962 Green Book noted. The guide also offered travel tips and featured articles on certain cities. The 1949 edition shined the spotlight on Robbins, Illinois, a town owned and operated by black people. In 1954, readers were encouraged to visit San Francisco, which was described as, quote, fast becoming the focal point of the Negro's future. In offering advice to its readers, the Green Book adopted a pleasant and encouraging tone. It usually avoided discussing racism in explicit terms. One article simply noted that, quote, the Negro traveler's inconveniences are many. But as the years passed, it began to champion the achievements of the civil rights movement. In one of its last editions in 1963-64, to 64, it included a special Your Rights, Briefly Speaking feature that listed state statutes related to discrimination in travel accommodations. Quote, The Negro is only demanding what everyone else wants, the article stressed. What is guaranteed all citizens by the Constitution of the United States. Victor Hugo Green died in 1960 after more than two decades of publishing his travel guide. His wife, Alma, took over as editor and continued to release the Green Book in updated editions for a few more years. But just as Green had once hoped, the March of Progress eventually helped push it toward obsolescence. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act finally banned racial segregation in restaurants, theaters, hotels, parks, and other public places. Just two years later, the Green Book quietly ceased publication after nearly 30 years in print. By 1968, the town of Martinsville, Indiana, was already rough on the edges before Carol Jenkins sat foot in its borders. It was known for many as the town that had posted a sign at its city limits stating, quote, Don't let the sun set on you, Negro. It had been only 18 years since Jim Crow laws were abolished. Jim Crow law in United States history was any of the laws that enforced racial segregation in the South between the end of Reconstruction in 1877 and the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s. Jim Crow was the name of a minstrel routine called Jump Jim Crow. The term came to be a derogatory epithet for black people and a designation for their segregated life. 
Every time I wheel about a junk Jim Crow, I went down to the river. I didn't mean to stay, but there I saw so many gals I couldn't get away. Wheel about and turn about and do just so. Every time I wheel about a junk Jim Crow. From the late 1870s, southern state legislatures passed laws requiring the separation of whites from, quote, persons of color in public transportation and schools. Generally, anyone of ascertainable or strongly suspected black ancestry in any degree was, for that purpose, a person of color. The pre-Civil War distinction favoring those whose ancestry was known to be mixed, particularly the half-French free persons of color in Louisiana, was abandoned. The segregation principle was extended to parks, cemeteries, theaters, and restaurants in an effort to prevent any contact between blacks and whites as equals. It was codified on local and state levels, and most famously with the separate but equal decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. In 1954, the Supreme Court revised Plessy in Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka. It declared segregation in public schools unconstitutional, and, by extension, that ruling was applied to other public facilities. In the years following, subsequent decisions struck down similar kinds of Jim Crow legislation. Though, on paper, freedom and equality came for all citizens, Martinsville and other towns in the Midwest harbored prejudice and kept the pot of racial bigotry simmering, if not boiling. When World War I ended, some Martinsville citizens turned the patriotic fervor generated by the war in an appalling direction. They joined the Ku Klux Klan, which was reviving itself to try to protest what it saw as domination by un-American groups of despised minority peoples. The modern Klan had its beginnings in Indiana, probably in Orange County, as early as 1890. Contrary to popular belief, the Klan wasn't a secret organization. It presented itself quite openly like a lodge or patriotic and social community organization, with women as members and families encouraged. What started as a joke a hundred years ago, when a group of men donned bedsheets for a romp, has over the years attracted to it persons charged with acts of harassment, intimidation, and violence throughout the South. Even though the nation has been outraged for many years, the Ku Klux Klan persists with its bizarre ritual and trappings. But a hundred years is a long time for a joke. The Ku Klux Klan is either of two distinct United States hate organizations that employed terror in pursuit of their white supremacist agenda. One group was founded immediately after the Civil War and lasted until the 1870s. The other began in 1915 and has continued to the present. The 19th century Klan was originally organized as a social club by Confederate veterans in Pulaski, Tennessee in 1866. They apparently derive the name from the Greek word kiklos, from which comes the English circle. Klan was added for the sake of alliteration, and the Ku Klux Klan emerged. The organization quickly became a vehicle for Southern white underground resistance to radical reconstruction. Klan members sought the restoration of white supremacy through intimidation and violence aimed at the newly enfranchised black freedmen. A similar organization, the Knights of the White Camellia, began in Louisiana in 1867. 
In the summer of 1867, the Klan was structured into the Invisible Empire of the South at a convention in Nashville, Tennessee, attended by delegates from former Confederate states. The group was presided over by a Grand Wizard and a descending hierarchy of Grand Dragons, Grand Titans, and Grand Cyclops. Confederate Cavalry General Nathan Bedford Forrest is believed to have been the first Grand Wizard. Dressed in robes and sheets designed to frighten superstitious black people and to prevent identification by the occupying federal troops, Klansmen whipped and killed freedmen and their white supporters in nighttime raids. The 19th century Klan reached its peak between 1868 and 1870. A potent force, it was largely responsible for the restoration of white rule in North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia. But Forrest ordered it disbanded in 1869, largely as a result of the group's excessive violence. Local branches remained active for a long time, however, prompting Congress to pass the Force Acts in 1870 and the Ku Klux Klan Act in 1871. The Ku Klux Klan Act, the third of a series of increasingly stringent enforcement acts, was designed to eliminate extra-legal violence and protect the civil and political rights of nearly four million freed slaves. The 14th Amendment, ratified in 1868, defined citizenship and guaranteed due process and equal protection of the law to all. Vigilante groups like the Ku Klux Klan, however, freely threatened African Americans and their white allies in the South and undermined the Republican Party's plan for Reconstruction. The bill authorized the president to intervene in the former rebel states that attempted to deny, quote, any person or any class of persons of the equal protection of the laws or of equal privileges or immunities under the laws. The bills authorized the president to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, suppress disturbances by force, and impose heavy penalties upon terrorist organizations. President Ulysses S. Grant was lax in utilizing the authority, although he did send federal troops to some areas, suspend habeas corpus in nine South Carolina counties, and appoint commissioners who arrested hundreds of Southerners for conspiracy. A grand jury convened in Columbia, South Carolina in 1879 to investigate the activities of the Klan concluded, in part, quote, During the whole session, we've been engaged in investigations of the most grave and extraordinary character, investigations of the crimes committed by the organization known as the Ku Klux Klan. The evidence elicited has been voluminous, gathered from the victims themselves and their families, as well as those who belong to the Klan and participated in its crimes. The jury has been shocked beyond measure at the developments which have been made in their presence of the number and character of the atrocities committed, producing a state of terror and a sense of utter insecurity among a large portion of the people, especially the colored population. In United States v. Harris in 1882, the Supreme Court declared the Ku Klux Klan Act unconstitutional, but by that time the Klan had practically disappeared. It disappeared because its original objective, the restoration of white supremacy throughout the South, had been largely achieved during the 1870s. The need for a secret anti-black organization diminished accordingly. The 20th century Klan had its roots more directly in the American nativist tradition. It was organized in 1915 near Atlanta, Georgia by Colonel William J. Simmons, a preacher and promoter of fraternal orders who had been inspired by Thomas Dixon's book, The Klansman, in 1905, and D.W. Griffith's film, The Birth of a Nation, from 1915. 
The new organization remained small until Edward Y. Clark and Elizabeth Tyler brought to it their talents as publicity agents and fundraisers. The revived clan was fueled partly by patriotism and partly by a romantic nostalgia for the Old South. But, more importantly, it expressed the defensive reaction of white Protestants and small-town America who felt threatened by the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia and by the large-scale immigration of the previous decades that had changed the ethnic character of American society. This second clan peaked in the 1920s, when its membership exceeded 4 million nationally, and profits rolled in from the sale of its memberships, regalia, costumes, publications, and rituals. A burning cross became the symbol of the new organization, and white-robed clansmen participated in marches, parades, and nighttime cross burnings all over the country. To the old clan's hostility toward blacks, the new clan, which was strong in the Midwest as well as the South, added bias against Roman Catholics, Jews, foreigners, and organized labor. The Klan enjoyed a last spurt of growth in 1928, when Alfred E. Smith, a Catholic, received the Democratic presidential nomination. During the Great Depression of the 1930s, the Klan's membership dropped drastically, and the last remnants of the organization temporarily disbanded in 1944. For the next 20 years, the Klan was quiescent but it had a resurgence in some southern states during the 1960s as civil rights workers attempted to force southern communities' compliance with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. There were numerous instances of bombings, whippings, and shootings in southern communities, carried out in secret but apparently the work of Klansmen. The Klan's Indiana leader, D.C. Stevenson, was clear about its goal. Quote, We are against Catholics, Jews, Negroes, and foreigners. In Martinsville, many of the citizens latched on to the creed, giving the town its reputation as a sundown town. The Klan's white robes were sometimes worn to commit despicable acts against minorities. There was a corrupt network of public officials loyal to the Klan. School boards, mayors of towns including Indianapolis, and even the governor of the state were open or secret Klan members. Money was, as usual, at the heart of the enterprise. Those joining paid a fee for membership and their robes, and fortunes began to be built as thousands took out memberships in the Klan. September 16, 1968 was Carol Jenkins' first day working. She was going to be knocking door-to-door selling Collier encyclopedias. Carol was a petite and pretty girl. She had dreams of modeling professionally, but had recently told her stepfather how she wanted to become a teacher. Carol Marie Jenkins was born April 21, 1947. She was three years old when her mother married her stepfather, and she grew up with five half-siblings in a close-knit family that adored her. They lived on what was known as The Hill in Rushville, which was about 50 miles east of Martinsville. On the weekends, Carol went roller skating and to parties with her friends. After graduating from Rushville High School in 1965, Carol landed a factory job at the Philco division of the Ford Motor Company. She was trying to save money to pursue her dreams when a strike forced her out of a job. When Carol heard about the encyclopedia sales job, she jumped at the opportunity, along with her 19-year-old friend. The two girls were undergoing training. Along with their crew manager and other salespeople, they were supposed to drive south to Vincennes that Monday evening. But somewhere along the way, the crew decided Martinsville was just as good as a location. 
Carol and her friend were aware of the potential dangers in the town where some were open bigots. They considered buying tear gas guns, but they dismissed their fears and settled on what they thought was a safe plan. Each salesperson was to cover a certain area of Martinsville. Carol was dropped off on the east side of town. She had knocked on more than a few doors by the time she arrived at Don Neal's house about three hours later. She had just encountered trouble and was visibly shaken. She sought protection inside the home, telling he and his wife that two men were following her in a 1965 Comet, shouting at her as they drove alongside. They immediately called the police. An officer responded to the home and offered to take Carol to police headquarters or to the gas station where she and her team planned to meet at 9 that night. Carol declined, feeling she had been bothered enough. She left the Neal residence, determined to finish her work for the day, and the police searched for the comment. They found the car and two teen boys who admitted to following Carol, but denied harassing her. They did inform the police that they saw a light-colored car in front of the Neal residence as Carol waited inside. Don Neal had reported seeing a similar vehicle and had actually written down a license plate number, but he later learned he made a crucial mistake. He inadvertently wrote the numbers down wrong. Kenneth Richmond was out for a drive with his seven-year-old daughter, Shirley. He picked up a friend of his and they headed for Old State Road 37. Kenny had been drinking, but that was nothing new. He drunkenly continued down the road and it began to drizzle as they entered a neighborhood near the center of town. Kenny and his friend had rolled the windows down and that's when they spotted her, an attractive young woman wearing a yellow scarf, glasses, and a brown coat. She was carrying some type of box with her and she walked alone, minding her own business. The men began wolf-whistling at her until they realized she was black. Embarrassed to have been whistling at a black woman, they spewed hateful, ugly words at her in disgust. The car stopped near the end of the street, and Kenny reached for a screwdriver. He and his friend exited the car, and the sound of the door slamming shut echoed out in the otherwise quiet street. Carol spotted the two men walking towards her and began to run. Kenny's friend grabbed Carol from behind, and she was unable to escape his grasp. When Kenny caught up with them, he raised the screwdriver above Carol's head. She wasn't able to defend herself as the screwdriver was driven forcibly down into her. Kenny and his friend left back to the car, laughing as they agreed that she had gotten what she deserved. Kenny's friend motioned to Shirley in the back seat and asked, what about her? Kenny waved off his friend saying, don't worry, she's too young to remember. Shirley didn't know Carol was dead, but saw that she had landed face first into a puddle of water and told her dad they needed to go back to help her. She was only met with the knee-slapping laughter of two boys who had pulled off what they felt was nothing more than a mischievous prank. A teenage boy who lived across the street discovered Carol and ran into a nearby restaurant to call the police. She was alive when they arrived, but dead shortly after an ambulance delivered her to the Morgan County Hospital. Only then was her brown wool jacket removed and her barely blood-stained white turtleneck sweater revealing a single stab wound on the left side of her chest. The Morgan County coroner conducted an autopsy the next day. The killer had punctured her heart. It was late by the time Kenny and Shirley arrived home. He had yelled at her in the car for not tuning the radio properly and through her sobs he realized that maybe she did know too much. Kenny couldn't take an upset seven-year-old to her mother. He pulled out his wallet and counted out seven dollars, one dollar for each year of her life. 
He placed it in Shirley's hands and told her not to tell Mom about what happened, that it was their little secret. Shirley took the money, with no clue that the human toll from what she had just experienced would far exceed any dollar amount anybody could think of. Despite Shirley's loyalty to the one man she would always love, Kenny came back to his daughter one day and demanded the $7 back. Six weeks after the murder, by which time there had been an accumulation of news stories bearing headlines like No Promising Leads in Murder Probe and Clues, Motives, Scarce in Martinsville Slaying and Police Put Lid on Fatal Stabbing Case, the Indianapolis chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People sent a telegram to the Attorney General, Ramsey Clark, requesting an investigation by the Department of Justice. The telegram stated that, quote, Morgan County has historically been associated with Ku Klux Klan-like activities. This was, of course, technically true. And indeed, the previous year, in the summer of 1967, a Klan motorcade had made a newsworthy tour of several central Indiana towns, which culminated in Martinsville. There, on the courthouse square, 30 or so robed Klansmen carried placards and distributed literature. The Indianapolis Star reported that the group's spokesman, quote, said Martinsville was chosen for a demonstration because there's a strong local chapter in Morgan County. Whether this episode had any connection to the murder was as much a matter of conjecture as most of the other elements of the case. The federal government never undertook a formal investigation, but the NAACP request helped plant in the minds of people, especially black people, in Indiana and beyond the belief that Carol Jenkins' murder was racially motivated and that no one should be surprised that it had taken place where it did. The first anniversary of the crime was the occasion for feature stories of the Anybody Know Carol's Killer variety. After that, more than three decades went by with virtually no substantial media coverage. Still, the crime had lodged in the collective memory of people who could never quite stop speculating about it. The prime suspect, a construction worker whose whereabouts on the night of the murder were unknown, left the state not long afterward and it was said, later died in a shootout in Illinois. Another suspect had been the owner of the auto repair shop near where Carol's notebook was found, a circumstance that gave rise to a widely held screwdriver-as-murder-weapon theory. Both men were among several to whom the police administered polygraphs and all passed, which, given the fallibility of polygraphs, proved and disproved nothing. Talking among themselves, Martinsville residents named names. Often, these conversations took place after a few drinks. Beyond Martinsville, the scuttlebutt was that the police were unwilling or too inept to make the case, a point of view that, in time, Carol's family subscribed to. Thirty-three years had passed before Shirley ever opened up about the secret of what happened that rainy night. It happened in therapy, when she admitted she began cutting herself recently. She told her therapist that slicing at her skin made her feel better, feel alive. It had become her way of coping with her most traumatizing secret. And so, it was time to reveal her most guarded secret. Her therapist jotted down, quote, Her father killed a black lady when she was seven. She has flashbacks. On paper, it was massively understated, like a grocery list. In real life, it was about haunting nightmares, gothic darkness, the pretty black lady falling to the ground, face first, her head splashing, all of it. November 19, 2001, the Morgan County prosecutor was furious. 
Sandra Chapman bringing to the public's attention the 30-year unsolved Carol Jenkins murder case had ripped open old wounds that the town wasn't ready to address. This cold case was finally gaining traction. In fact, Shirley's sister-in-law had seen Sandra Chapman's reporting on the cold case and immediately called her up. Shirley had confided in her about what happened that night, and upon hearing the story on the news, she begged Shirley to come forward with what she knew. But Shirley declined. Her father was old, and she felt it would hurt more people than it would help. Her sister-in-law wouldn't have that, and betrayed her trust for an ultimately noble reason. She sent an anonymous letter to the police station one week after the airing of Sandra Chapman's investigation. On May 8, 2002, police arrested Kenny Richmond at the Indianapolis nursing home he resided in. Kenny was in his 70s now and had lived a life full of crime and hate. In addition to his criminal history, he was a known affiliate of the KKK. Shirley, after all these years keeping her father's secret, corroborated the confession in the anonymous letter. She even recalled what Carol was wearing, the details of which were never presented to the public. Unfortunately, Kenny Richmond never went to trial for the murder of Carol Jenkins, and his accomplice was never identified. At the start of August, he was declared incompetent to stand trial. On August 31st, he died of bladder cancer. Don Neal and his wife Norma, who invited Carol inside their house to call the police when she felt unsafe, began receiving death threats when it was publicized that they were the couple that tried to help her. Carol was interred at the East Hill Cemetery in Rushville, Indiana. A community park in Rushville was dedicated to Carol's memory on November 1, 2017. A memory stone was placed in the garden of Martinsville City Hall on November 2, 2017. The stone reads, Carol Jenkins Davis, April 21st, 1947 to September 16th, 1968. Carol's life had enormous value and promise. The Rushville and Martinsville communities have joined together to honor Carol and recognize her family's love. Upon receiving the memory stone in Carol's honor, her sister remarked, quote, One of God's greatest commandments is love one another. In Carol's 21 years, all she was ever about was love. Her challenge to each and every one of you is to love one another. Thank you so much for listening to the final episode of 2022, and I hope to see you all back next year for more stories from the mortuary.